Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the dueling speeches in Washington today from former Vice President Pence and former President Trump, in which Pence rejoiced, We saved the babies, we'll save America. And Trump declared darkly, Our country is going to hell. Joining us for an assessment of the speeches and of some legislative victories in the pipeline that may help reverse Biden's sinking poll numbers is Harold Myerson, one of the nation's best-known progressive columnists and editor-at-large at the American Prospect. He also writes regularly about California politics for the Los Angeles Times and other national publications, and we'll discuss his latest article at the American Prospect, The Good, the Bad and the Omitted in the Electoral Count Act, as well as examine the possibility Attorney General Garland is acting with excessive caution because he's afraid that indicting and trying Trump could spark a civil war. Then we'll look into the contrast between the January 6th hearings bringing to light how Trump was determined to overthrow the government by force, while at the same time the three judges he appointed to the Supreme Court showed how to overthrow the government by decree. Joining us is Robert McElvain to explain how the greedy American oligarchy decided the best way to achieve their objectives was to buy the least democratic branch of the American Republic and are now in the process of attaining their goal. He is a professor of history and the chair of arts and letters at Millsaps College and is considered one of the world's leading historians of the era of the Great Depression and is now the author of 10 books including The Encyclopedia of the Great Depression. His most recent book is The Times They Were Changing, 1964, The Year the Sixties Arrived and the Battle Lines of Today Were Drawn. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Harold Myerson, one of the nation's best-known progressive columnists and editor-at-large of The American Prospect. He also writes regularly about California politics for The Los Angeles Times and other national publications. And his latest article at The American Prospect is The Good, the Bad, and the Omitted in the Electoral Count Act. Welcome to Background Briefing, Harold Myerson. Good to be here, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And obviously, I want to talk to you about the Electoral Count Act and the efforts underway to reform it. But today in Washington, you had the two dueling uh, speeches earlier in the day from Vice President Mike Pence and then later in the day by former President Donald Trump, who gave a keynote speech at the America First Policy Institute Summit at the Marriott Hotel in Washington, D.C., where Trump talked about migrants stampeding across the border, roving mobs of thieves in the streets, and went on to say, our country is going to hell. In contrast, Mike Pence said that 
some people may choose to focus on the past, but elections are about the future. He told a audience of young conservatives. He did also talk about, of course, the need to turn back, quote, the pernicious woke agenda that allows the radical left to continue dumping toxic waste into the headwaters of our culture. And then he went on to say to a rousing cheer, we save the babies, we'll save America. So what do you make of this competing rhetoric? Well, it's interesting. You know, uh, there have been some stories about how Trump advisors told him, look, when you get, when you get up to D.C., to make this speech, please don't obsess as you have for the last, you know, year and a half about the 2020 election. Uh, and we know that o- only a couple of weeks ago, he actually made a call to the Republican Speaker of the Wisconsin State Assembly to see if he could reverse res- Wisconsin's vote in the 2020 election, which some of us think is um, not only ridiculous, but a little late. Uh, and, and they said, you've, you've got to focus on, uh, on other stuff. And so this is Trump's other stuff. It's, uh, uh, racist, uh, you know, uh, apocalyptic hogwash. Uh, so, uh, but you know, from, from the Trump, from the point of view of Trump's handlers, uh, not that he is someone who is handled, uh, all that readily, uh, you know, the, the speech has to be viewed as a success, uh, he got back to, you know, his old standbys of, uh, of uh, you know, defaming uh, everyone. Now, the Penn speech is really kind of interesting in one particular regard, which is to say, you know, he's counting on re- turning out Republicans uh, based on the kind of culture war they've been rage- waging, you know, at least since Pat Buchanan, if not since Joe McCarthy. Uh, but the, the irony of this particular election is that the only way Democrats are going to prevail uh, in November is because the Republicans have uh, gotten way out on uh, two culture war issues, you know, which are more than that, but which strike uh, the American public as much more serious than uh, the alleged wokeism that they uh, that they've seen uh, among Democrats, which is to say abortion and uh, guns. Uh, The irony is that we're approaching a general election in which the Democrats have to hope people are voting on those kinds of cultural issues and not on inflation and the other problems with the economy that the Republicans and Joe Manchin have kept the Democrats from addressing. So as as a fellow purveyor of the pernicious woke agenda, um, <laughs> dumping toxic waste into the headwa- headwaters. Yeah, that, yeah, that that, that sounds like a, you know almost a, a Pat Buchanan or William Sapphire line. I mean, you know, we're kind of going back right. to the speech writing uh, uh, crap that uh, once upon a time, for those of us with long right. memories, came out of people like Spiro Agnew. So uh, right, but here but we go I, again. I, I, I was going to say, though, that here he is rhetorically talking about the left dumping toxic waste into the headwaters of our culture, where his supporters dump real toxic waste into real headwaters. absolutely. (laughs) My God. Absolutely. And when the Democrats want to clean up uh, those those sites and brownfields, as they're called, Republicans don't want to spend any money on it. So, yes, you're absolutely right, Ian. 
And again, I'm speaking with Harold Myerson, one of the nation's best-known progressive columnists and editor-at-large of The American Prospect. He also writes regularly about California politics for the Los Angeles Times and other national publications. And his latest article at The American Prospect is The Good, the Bad, and the Omitted in the Electoral Count Act. So let's talk then about your article at The American Prospect the good, the bad, and the omitted in the Electoral Count Act, because it's one of the few things that seems to be getting done. Although Biden's got a a number of uh, legislative achievements up his sleeve that will be coming thick and fast. So that's certainly might change the dynamic of his tanking uh, poll numbers. But first of all, my understanding is that even though there are, what, 16, uh, bipartisan group of 16 U.S. senators have, have agreed to this reform of the Electoral Count Act of 1887, and a number of Republicans are aboard. It's being negotiated by two very unpopular senators with the progressives in the Senate. That's Joe Manchin and Susan Collins. So that's not exactly an inviting fact, is it? Well, I mean, the, the, the point is it has to get 10 Republicans in the Senate uh, to be enacted. Uh, and so there are a couple shy, uh, you know, they have eight who are already co-sponsors and need two more. And, uh, you know, in this case, I'm not sure it matters who the messengers are. It does matter who the authors are, however. And, uh, what the authors have done is good insofar as it goes, but, uh, it, it doesn't address the whole issues of, uh, voter suppression that the original voting rights legislation that the Democrats put forward uh, at the beginning of Joe Biden's presidency that, you know, it it contained all kinds of specifications about ensuring voter rights. It it doesn't really do that. This, This functions on a number of dysfunctions of the electoral college. Of course, it doesn't it doesn't deal with the larger dysfunction of the existence of the electoral college, which has saddled us with uh, some presidents who didn't actually win a majority or even a plurality of the popular vote. Uh, among them, uh, Donald Trump and, uh, and and George W. Bush in his first go round. So, uh, to, to it, recent the recent Republican presidents. What it does do is it it kind of uh, makes clear that, uh, you know, the vice president, when the votes are opened on January 6th, uh, is simply uh, has a what's called a ministerial function. He doesn't have any real power. It uh, uh, really forbids there to be multiple slates of electors, as their their Trump people try to generate uh, by requiring governors to uh, be the ones who submit just a single state of electors. It uh, gives uh, uh, presidential candidates uh, an expedited way to challenge a particular state's vote uh, vote count in court. If, if you know, the legislature or the governor uh, has some mischief up uh, his or her sleeve, it uh, blocks the uh, uh, John Eastman Trump fantasy of having the legislature feeling free to substitute its own slate of electors for the one that the voters, uh, you know, voted for. So it, what it does is good. It just doesn't address, uh, you know, larger issues for which progressives and, you know, more than progressives are concerned about, which is the Republican Party's attempts and, you know, 
in many cases, new laws intended to suppress the vote of, uh, of constituencies they think will vote Democratic, chiefly minorities and, uh, and the young. And the bill also replaces the old rule under which a single member of the House and a single member of the Senate can object to a state's electors. Right. That would, instead, it would right. require it, it 20%. It requires 20% yeah. in each House, uh, which uh, they wouldn't have gotten in the Senate in, uh, uh, in, in 2020. So all of what you've just told us is, is encouraging. I mean, it's, yes. so where does it stand? I, I understand that uh, Senator Amy Klobuchar is the chair of the Senate Rules Committee, and she's going to be holding hearings on the legislation, but what's the, how short of the threshold are they? Are they too short of the filibuster threshold? Well, you know, we, we don't... Well, they're, they're one or two short uh, uh, in terms of what we know publicly. Now... You know, one can be somewhat encouraged by the fact that Mitch McConnell has sort of uh, endorsed the general idea. Uh, And I think McConnell will probably conclude that it's better to have this law than not, uh, because he doesn't want to go through a replay of January 6th. But, you know, we don't know uh, until we know. And uh, that remains to be seen. And you're right about the larger uh, statement that Joe Joe Biden has some stuff lined up that actually looks like it may pass, uh, like lowering the, the, the cost of some prescription drugs by enabling Medicare to negotiate prices down. But you know, again, uh, we've <laughs> we've thought we've been close before, so so we shall see. And whatever whatever is passed is just a small fraction, of course, of the, the what was initially in the Build Back Better bill. But, uh, you know, that doesn't mean it isn't real uh, and uh, uh, it might, uh, you know, uh, help save the Democrats from being uh, completely wiped out uh, in the November midterms. Well, what's your sense then of, of where this will go if Amy Klobuchar is going to be holding hearings soon? And then Liz Cheney is working with Zoe Lofgren in the House. So, and they're of course prominent on the January sixth committee. What are the, well, what it, are... it will pass in the House. the The only question is, will it get sixty votes in the Senate? And uh, my hunch is that it will, and that this will proceed rather quickly. I mean, they don't have a heck of a lot of time left in uh, uh, you know before November. Uh, uh, so, so I, 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 if I had to bet on any one measure. Uh, passing, I would make a small bet on this one, uh, but uh, caution dictates and, and recent experience dictates that it has to be a small bet. Well, but that applies to almost everything that the Democrats have on their agenda. You've got to get everything done before November because if the Republicans take the House, it's going to be you know, yeah. Benghazi trials up to kazoo of Hunter Biden, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, but but again, to pass in the Senate, it, it's not just Democrats; it's ten Republicans. That's why, uh, you know, that that's why this is, tr- is still tricky. Uh, you know, the things like uh, the reducing uh, drug prices by having uh, enabling Medicare to negotiate some of them uh, that only requires fifty votes plus Kamala Harris. Though there they have a bed, uh, deadline of September 30th 
which is the latest date that a so-called reconciliation bill can pass. So just to go back to what dominated Washington today and the, the dueling speeches, there's also some activity in terms of Pence's top aides, including his ex-chief of staff, Mark Short, who apparently testified to a Department of Justice grand jury, uh, I think, a, what, a day or so ago, right? Maybe it was on yes. Monday. What do you make of that development? Um, I mean, there's so well, much Well, I think criticism. one of the consequences of the January 6th hearings, which I think from, uh, if I may use this figure of speech, from our point of view, have gone a lot better than expected. One of the consequences of those hearings is really to push Merrick Garland uh, you know, to realize that uh, he, he pretty much has to do some serious indictments uh, and quite possibly one of Donald Trump. Uh, so the Justice Department, which had appeared to be pretty dilatory in getting around to pushing this case, clearly uh, is uh, tr- appears to be making up for lost time, as, as Mark Short's testimony now, you know, gives some evidence of. Well, I have talked to some former DOJ senior officials and their sources still inside the DOJ say that there's a concern that Merrick Garland does not want to to indict and try Trump because he's concerned of the backlash from his radical militia wing that that could provoke a form of civil war and that as the chief law enforcement officer in the country, he feels it's important not to provide the pretext, if you will, for you know civil unrest, which is the last thing the country needs. So have you heard anything to that effect, Harold? I have, but I've also heard that you know he's going to get a huge, though presumably nonviolent eruption, from, uh, you know, the, the left, the center left and some of the center, if he doesn't indict Trump, this is this is, you know, <laughs> uh, truly the situation is damned if you do and damned if you don't, although the forms that the damnation will take uh, will be somewhat different. Well, it's really not his job to consider politics, is it? I mean, the, he's the chief law enforcement officer and he, his job is to prosecute crime well if his job is to prosecute crime then he should indict trump right i mean it was after all it was then uh, president jerry ford who made the decision to pardon nixon it wasn't the attorney general and you know it's a political decision isn't it it shouldn't well, be a political decision I sh- that's what i mean to say it shouldn't be a political decision for the uh, well, how could this not be? I mean, this this has to be both a legal and political decision. Uh, if uh, laws were self-executing, we wouldn't really need an attorney general. The attorney general chooses subject matters that are, you know, that he or she considers more important than others, crimes that may be more important than others, what's a felony, what's a misdemeanor, what's not worth indicting on. Those are all decisions uh, inherently in, in which are both legal and political. So what's your expectation? Do you think that there will be an indictment? I mean, I I was speaking yesterday with J- James Risen, a former mm-hmm. investigative journalist with the sure. LA with the New York Times and now with the Intercept. And he was just frustrated 
as a journalist saying, after you saw these uh, hearings, in the last several of them, particularly the last couple, with Cassidy Hutchison and then the timeline, the last one on th last Thursday, right. that it's just so clear that this was a coup attempt, that this guy is, Jim even referred, uh, compared Trump to Jim Jones, just a, leading a, a cult. He's a cult leader, leading this violent cult who were bent on murdering the vice president and Nancy Pelosi and anybody get that get their hands on. And it was almost like, you know, what's going on with the political reporters that are uh, reporting on what's happened in kind of the still as though this was a legitimate political discourse we were talking about, as opposed to something that's beyond the pale and is only the kind of stuff that you would you uh, saw in you know the 1930s in Germany. So is that a legitimate criticism? Yeah, well, I, I think there's a, you know, I think a lot of the media coverage has, has moved beyond both sides-ism as far as this goes. And I think the great achievement of the January 6th committee, and it is a great achievement, is to make clear that the January 6th insurrection was simply the last way that Trump could try to reverse uh, the election, that, that this was all part, you know, that because it got into all the other ways in which he tried to reverse the election. And it's, it's painted a much more complete picture of, you know, Trump's designs, Trump's strategy, if we can dignify it with that word, uh, you know, and th that it's all part of a whole. And I think, you know, that realization has sunk in among, uh, I think a lot of the journalistic mainstream and a, a lot of public, which is, you know, certainly something that the above mentioned Merrick Garland uh, is uh, is aware of. So you don't think we need to replace political reporters in Washington with crime reporters? Well, uh, when the two overlap, uh, you know, <laughs> then the two overlap. I mean, good political reporting. Uh, you know, uh, should include uh, a realization that a crime is a crime. Uh, you know, I don't think it's in, in any sense mutually exclusive. Right. Well, you know, Lester Holt did do a uh, interview with Garland, and he did seem to make it clear that anybody who committed a crime has to be prosecuted, and nobody is above the law. So maybe this, the pressure on him, maybe the pressure on him has been useful, but maybe at the end, at the end of the day it's unfair and maybe it's a good thing uh, in a way that that Garland has a reputation of being cautious and fair and, and even handed and that may blunt some of the fear that he's alleged to have that he could provoke a civil war by indicting Trump well look uh, no matter who were to indict Trump it would be uh, a very big deal but you're right that Garland has, uh, you know, the image of a moderate. Well, of course, so does Joe Biden. And that hasn't uh, helped. It helped him perhaps in November of 2020. It hasn't been a great help to him since. So uh, I, don't, I don't know. You know, I, I, let's put it this way. The, the kind of people who write newspaper editorials would appreciate that, you know, you know Garland is this well-known moderate who wouldn't do anything extreme. And so if he does this, well, that's perfectly okay. You know, most Americans will react to the indictment per se, not to the moderation of Garland, which is so beloved of uh, so many editorial writers. 
Well, Harold Myerson, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Harold Myerson, one of the nation's best-known progressive columnists and editor-at-large of the American Prospect. He also writes regularly about California politics for the Los Angeles Times and other national publications. And his latest article at the American Prospect is The Good, the Bad, and the Omitted in the Electoral Count Act. We can take a brief station break and back looking into the contrast between the January 6 hearings bringing to light how Trump was determined to overthrow the government by force while at the same time the three judges he appointed to the Supreme Court showed how to overthrow the government by decree. From senators, congressmen, please heed the call. Don't stand in the doorway, don't block up the hall. For he that gets hurt will be he who has stalled. The battle outside region will soon shake your windows and rattle your walls. For the times they are changing. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Robert McElvain, who is a professor of history and the chair of arts and letters at Millsaps College. He is considered one of the world's leading historians of the era of the Great Depression and the author of 10 books, including the Encyclopedia of the Great Depression, and most recently, The Times They Were a Change in, 1964, the year the 60s arrived and the battle lines of today were drawn. And he has an article at Salon, Seven Days in June, a coup more effective than Donald Trump's. Welcome to Background Briefing, Robert McElvain. Glad to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us in, in your Salon article, the Seven Days in June, a coup more effective than Donald Trump's. You say that Two days after Cassidy, Hutchinson provided a riveting account of how the then-president was determined to overthrow the government by force. The three people he appointed to the Supreme Court showed how to overthrow the government by decree. And this is extraordinary. As an historian, there's no example, is it, of, of this third branch of government that's normally the least active, as opposed to the executive and legislative branches, literally accruing so much power to itself uh, and basically taking power away from the legislative branch to provide expertise to the government. It's an amazing power grab, is it not? It certainly is. Um, I mean, there have been times in the past when the court has exercised great power. Uh, the infamous Dred Scott decision in the late 1850s basically uh, um, saying that enslavers could take their quote-unquote property and slaves with them wherever they wanted in the new territories. The Plessy v. Ferguson in 1896, and then that being reversed in the Brown decision in 1954. Several decisions expanding uh, people's rights during the 1960s. But uh, I think you're absolutely right. There's never been anything like this where they're basically um, totally hamstringing the federal government. I mean, you moved in in just a week from using very specious reasoning, I would say, and terrible history uh, in terms of how abortion has been viewed throughout American history to overturn, uh, really for the first time in American history, something that was a basic right of citizens for uh, nearly, uh, I guess, nearly 50 years, almost exactly 50 years. But then... Uh, by the end of that week, uh, they moved with the West Virginia versus EPA decision to basically argue that 
the legislative branch, Congress cannot turn over to executive agencies the power to enforce regulations, which is not only a threat to the EPA and a threat to the planet in terms of global warming, but if that precedent is pushed into other areas, it would basically say that the federal government can't regulate anything uh, unless Congress specifically does it you know, one issue at a time. And if that wasn't bad enough, then they announced at the end of that uh, session uh, that they're taking up a case from North Carolina uh, that is based on uh, an idea of legislative supremacy, state legislatures being supreme, the bottom line of which is that next, the next uh, session, the 2022-23 session of the court, may well decide that what Trump tried to do illegally, that is, uh, overturn the will of voters in states and have the electors uh, replaced doing that illegally, that they will say that's perfectly legal. The legislatures can just appoint whoever they want. As the electors, it doesn't make any difference how people voted. That would basically write the end to American democracy. And you argue in your article at Salon, Robert McElveen, that the objectives of the uh, greedy few, which is, I think you're suggesting, the American oligarchs or the American oligarchy, the objectives of the greedy few stand a better chance in the least democratic branch of the American Republic. And it does seem that the Supreme Court was targeted by the plutocracy. After all, the one person at the Federalist Society who chose all these justices, not just on the Supreme Court, but also in the federal judiciary, which is now stacked by these ultra-conservative justices. He, uh, Leonard Leo, created the Judicial Crisis Network. They raised a quarter of a billion dollars to get Gorsuch, Amy Coney Barrett, and Kavanaugh on the court. But they, uh, a lot of the money came from people like the Koch brothers. So can you make the case that the, this current court was bought? Oh, I think absolutely. And this this has been going on for a long time. In some sense, you could uh, take the ideas back as far as uh, the period of enslavement and John C. Calhoun, who was the chief theoretician of the enslavers uh, from South Carolina in the first half of the 19th century, um, arguing that state legislatures were the place where all power should rest because his view was that property rights by which he meant the right to own human beings, pretty much nothing else. They, they talk about states' rights, but states' rights have always really been states' wrongs. But it could protect other sorts of property as well, corporate property and so forth, in later years after the Civil War. And that, that view um, began to be uh, kind of re-pushed in the wake of the Brown decision in the 1950s, Historian Nancy McLean in her book, Democracy in Chains, uh, shows how, uh, with, with some people going back to the mid-1950s, they're trying to push this idea uh, that uh, you can, can protect so-called property rights um, against uh, the view of the majority. And um, this this was developing. Um, my my new book is about 1964 and its impact on today. Well, um, in in 1964, the extreme right got control of the Republican Party and nominated Barry Coldwater, but they discovered that year that uh, they had nothing close to majority support. Lyndon Johnson won in a landslide. Johnson was pushing exactly the sort of activist government that. 
uh, would put people's rights above property rights that they were so afraid of. And so they just began redoubling their efforts, and particularly since about 1980, when Ronald Reagan was elected two years later, the Federalist Society was formed. Um, they've been playing this long game, and it's it's billionaires. And, um, they, they may not have yet been quite billionaires, but uh, in, in today's dollars, they would have been billionaires even then. The Koch brothers and the Coors and numerous others were using what Jane Mayer calls in her book, Dark Money, uh, to influence in a variety of ways, but mainly this Federalist Society. They slowly changed the kind of dominant view in the legal profession uh, from one that was very much accepting of an activist government uh, doing things for the people uh, to this idea that the government should have little to no power. And they've exceeded extraordinarily, not just the uh, the three people that Trump appointed, uh, although they uh, pushed it over the top, but the other three who were in the six-person supermajority of the radical right. I, uh, I really uh, don't like calling them conservatives because the only thing they're interested in conserving is uh, the property of the super rich and white male supremacy. Uh, nothing conservative about them. They're, they're radicals of the right. All six of them who voted that way came out of the Federalist Society. And it represents a, a tiny minority of the country. Uh, it's, it's really an outrage. Well, I would describe them, and I, I agree with you, Robert, that you shouldn't call them conservatives. They're right-wing radicals, and they operate, as does the Federalist Society, on a combination of laissez-faire capitalism and moral authoritarianism, given that Leonard Leo is an Opus Dei extreme conservative, and many of the justices he appointed are likewise. So it's a one-two punch, is it not? Yeah, it certainly is, and it will, if it's not stopped in one way or another, really, it really destroy the country. I mean, already you have these extraordinarily unpopular positions being approved by the court, or the court taking up cases in which it will approve it, approve these other unpopular ideas. You have almost all Republicans in Congress just over the last week or so. Uh, refuse to vote to uh, protect uh, the right to contraception. Like 99% of them voted against that in the House. 97%, I may not have these figures exactly right, but in the upper 90s on each of them, um, voted uh, against protecting the right of a woman to cross state lines in order to get an abortion. I mean, the idea that you can stop people in the United States from going to one state, from one state to another, is just absurd. Uh, but but that's where they're headed. The thing is that those positions are so unpopular with the general public that you would think, you would hope that Democrats could get their act together enough and get a message out, which they're so terrible at doing, that just focused on five or six of these things, and most particularly the end of American democracy, and get people to vote overwhelmingly against the Republicans. I think I think Democrats are in fairly good shape in expanding their majority in the Senate, but the House, with gerrymandering and restrictions on voting, is a much tougher thing. But, um, you know, the, the, the idea of being worried about inflation, we well, yes, inflation's a problem, 
Um, but it's a problem that Democrats are trying to do something about, whereas Republicans are just so happy inflation is going on. Rick Scott, the senator from Florida, is the head of the Republican Senatorial uh, Committee this year, a couple of months ago, said inflation is a gold mine for us. They don't want to do anything about it. They want people to suffer. I have no program for it whatsoever. Um, and, and people need to realize that this is kind of it. If... Um, if even one House goes to Republicans this November, it's highly unlikely that the House would approve a Democratic winner in 2024. So it's not like this is 2024. It's this year that the future of the country is at stake. Let's take a brief station break, and we will continue the conversation with Robert McElvain. Well, you say that I'm an outlaw. You say that I'm a thief. Here's a Christmas dinner for the families on relief. Yes, it's through this world I've wandered. I've seen lots of funny men. Some will rob you with a six-gun and some with a fountain pen. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And I'm continuing the conversation with Robert McElvain, who's a professor of history and the chair of arts and letters at Millsaps College. He's considered one of the world's leading historians of the era of the Great Depression and the author of 10 books, including the Encyclopedia of the Great Depression, and most recently, The Times They Were A-Changin', 1964, the year the 60s arrived and the battle lines of today were drawn. And he has an article at Salon, Seven Days in June, A Coup More Effective Than Donald Trump's. So since we're talking about the 6-3 ultra-conservative majority on the Supreme Court that's now starting to roll up its sleeve and enact an extremely radical right-wing agenda in basically consolidating the power of the American plutocracy at the expense of the American democracy, it could not be more different from the era that you cover in your book, Robert, which is basically 1964, and just in terms of the Supreme Court, back then, they had real liberals on the Supreme Court. I mean, we talk about the liberals on the Supreme Court as though they're liberals, and most, a lot of them are basically centrist, but you know, because the right is so far to the right, we refer to them as liberals. But back then, you had William O. Douglas and, and Thurgood Marshall. Thurgood uh, Marshall I came in right after that, and uh, Earl Warren, who was a Republican, but was... Uh, became very progressive. Um, yeah, the, the court was um, doing exactly the opposite then. But one of the important things, and, and one of the arguments I make in my new book, The Times They Were Changing, is that um, what uh, how the battle lines of today were drawn then. Um, that is that almost everything that is at stake now amounts to the people who have taken control of the Republican Party. <laughs> and, you know, they, the right-wing people like to throw around rhino, Republican, and name only, but like almost everything else, uh, what they say really means the opposite. The people who are Republicans and name only are the MAGA people. They don't believe in a republic at all. They believe in autocracy. Uh, they claim to be conservatives. They, they could be called CINOs or something, C-I-N-O, as conservatives and name only. But those people who have taken over the party, everything they're trying to do, they say, take America back. Well, take America back from whom and to when? 
from the people who began to get equal rights, and totally begin then, but really took off in 1964-65. The country became a full democracy for the first time. Take it back from then, go back to a time of the 1950s that they glorify with the 1950s were really still going on in the first years of the 60s, a time when white, straight, at least in public, men basically ruled everything and were unchallenged. That's what they want to go back to. And so the the uh, program of the so-called Republicans is basically to erase the 60s, and uh, they're, they're doing uh, all they can to, to bring that about. You mentioned in your book the times they were changing. 1964, the year the 60s arrived and the battle lines of today were drawn. That in uh, that since, although nearly two-thirds of Americans were born after 1969, John F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King Jr. and others of the epoch lived on as mythological figures. And that the in 1968, the Beatles released their final album two years later. And the flower ch- <laughs> and the flower children now are babysitting their grandchildren. So I've often wondered, Robert, why you couldn't have a powerful political coalition of the former flower children, the the baby boomers, and their millennial children, who both you know share sort of liberal and hopeful outlooks. I mean. The 60s was was all about peace and love and positivity. And the, it does feel like in many ways that the, the children of the baby boomers are also very idealistic. And even the younger ones today that are leading the fight against climate change and to recognize the clear and present danger of global warming. So is that still possible in the face of this counter-majoritarian coup that's taking place in this country with the Supreme Court and with a radical Republican Party that models itself on the dictator in Hungary, Viktor Orban? Well, let me preface that by saying I'm a congenital optimist, all the evidence in the country notwithstanding, but yeah, I think it's very, very possible. The, uh, the younger people today, again, the the children, to some extent, even the grandchildren of people who were around uh, in the mid-60s, have many of the same ideals. And for a long time, I mean, one thing idealism can do is get you disillusioned if you uh, don't see things happening quickly that that you want to happen. And, and I think one thing that's happened over the past year and a half or so is that a lot of people especially younger people, are just disgusted that the Democrats haven't accomplished more. and They're in power, and of course they're not looking at the fact that they're not really in power, that they only have 50-50 in the Senate, and that uh, you can't do anything with that when that 50 includes cinema and mansion, and when there's a filibuster, uh, they have accomplished a lot. But um, what, what needs to be done, I think, is to convince those younger people that there's a, a critical difference between these 97, 98 percent of Republicans who are against what particularly younger people just overwhelmingly believe in and take to be uh, rights that are beyond dispute. And then you, you bring up climate change. And, of course, they're the ones even more concerned about climate change. I remember Ronald Reagan and Ronald Reagan. I often say Ronald Reagan when I meet Donald Trump, although Reagan, bad as he was, was nowhere near as bad as Trump. Trump was asked about uh, climate change back, I guess, maybe two years into his presidency. And he said, 
why should I care? I'll be dead then. Um, that's that's the attitude he has. Well, the younger people don't have any choice but to be concerned about it. And, you know, this summer again, each summer gets worse with heat waves and fires and all the rest of it. The Republicans don't have a program about that at all. The Democrats have, have done some things and managed to get some things through. But if they got uh, held the House and got even a couple more in the Senate, to decide to vote out the filibuster, they could do all these things that young people want. So the critical thing is getting them to see that, no, you don't just say, oh, both sides are the same. They're not remotely the same, that the only people who can save America at this point are the Democrats. So what happened then to the liberals when you go back to the era that your book covers, particularly 1964, where you had a real... A liberal majority on the Supreme Court. You had a liberal majority in the Senate and a liberal majority in the House. And now the tables have turned so radically, particularly with the Supreme Court. You know, I've often wondered why it is that liberals aren't more proud of the achievements because throughout history, they're the ones that have done all the heavy lifting. They ended slavery. They brought about the women's vote. They brought about civil rights, human rights. You name it. I mean... uh, you know, the other side has only ever said no to everything. And you just point out they're saying no to dealing with climate change, which is the most existential threat that the planet faces. So, yeah, exactly. And of course, um, the other side, you know, which side is called Democrats and which side is called Republicans, that has switched over the course of American history, going back to the 1850s, 60s, into the 1870s. Uh, the Republicans were uh, the radically liberal people, uh, ending slavery and uh, pu- putting through a very progressive program in Reconstruction. And even into the progressive era, more progressives were Republicans. That began to shift with the New Deal, but then it shifted decisively uh, following 1964. In answer to your question of, of what happened to uh that that liberal coalition uh, of 1964, 65. I, uh, the book I say 1964, but I explain I'm referring really to a long 1964 from the Kennedy assassination in late 63 into mid-1965, which covers the Voting Rights Act and Medicare and Medicaid and many other Johnson programs. Um, the thing that most happened to destroy that can be put into one word, Vietnam. Um, in fact, I, I include in the book uh, like a, a little equation, um, LBJ minus Vietnam equals Mount Rushmore plus LBJ. LBJ was an extraordinarily progressive and successful president. In part, that's just because he really, you know, I, I sometimes hate to say that he really believed things because he's such a notorious liar, but he really did believe in these programs to help people and to believe in civil rights and all that. But in addition to that, you had the the movement coming up from below, the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, all of this. It was, it was a zeitgeist at the time. One of the kind of remarkable things I talk about early in the book is in January of 1964, within five days of each other, Johnson gave his State of the Union address where he declared a war on poverty and said that uh, not some, but all racism must be abolished in the country. 
Five days later, Bob Dylan's The Times They Were Changing came out, and really they were saying uh, almost the same thing. You know, the first one now will later be last, and, and uplifting people. It was a totally unconscious, but they were both reflecting the spirit of the times. That was destroyed fairly quickly because of Vietnam, and then also because of racial uprisings uh, starting particularly with Watts in August of 1965 and then getting worse in some of the later years in the 60s. Well, I guess it's sort of emblematic that Bob Dylan just recently re-recorded The Times They Are Changing, but he did it on a new vinyl process that's analog, and apparently it's an exclusive sale that only millionaires and billionaires can afford. <laughs> so yeah. uh, there yeah, you Dylan, have it. Dylan has proven to have nothing against making money. That's sure. Well, that's for sure, yeah. But I'd like to hear it. Uh, but uh, I think, you know, I can't afford Well, uh, if you can come up with a few million, maybe you can. Right. So, again, when I ask you the question, Robert, about what happened to the liberals because they have everything to be proud of, and yet they're defensive and they're annoyed with Biden because he's not delivering. And they don't, they're more annoyed at Biden, it seems, and they are afraid of a fascist takeover of this country, which is staring them in the face. So what's, what's going to galvanize or recreate that majority, that liberal majority in this country in the face of this counter-majoritarian fascist movement? Yeah, uh, well, I, I think it's it's there. I think uh, um, it was there pretty strongly in the early months of the Biden administration. Um, when he the proposals he was making were for the most far-reaching progressive program uh, since Johnson's Great Society, and if he had been able to get Mansion and Cinema to go along with that, and then even more recently, um, this this idea of a uh, tax surcharge on billionaires that Manchin wouldn't go along with. And, and people um, kind of understandably don't realize how the government works in that, in that way. Um, you know, Trump wants to be somebody who can just dictate things. Um, even he was not able to do that, although if he came back with uh, some of the changes the court and others are putting through, he might be able to. But a president can't just do that when you have a 50-50 Senate and you have a filibuster. And so, uh, and he did accomplish a lot, but um, people people were expecting more. And what they expect is, is liberal progressive things. That doesn't mean they've given up on that at all. They're just disappointed that he hasn't accomplished more of that. But as the title of your book says, the times they were changing, 1964 the year, the 60s arrived, and the battle lines of today were drawn. So... Let's focus on that. The battle lines of today have been drawn. They ought to be clear and alarming to anybody on the left. And the point that you're making is that with such a slim majority in the House and an even slimmer one in the Senate, Biden is trying to do what everybody wants. It just can't be done because guess what? You don't have enough Democrats. You don't have enough of them in the Senate. You don't have enough of them in the House. And the answer is to get more of them in the House and more in the Senate. So how do we get around the, the kind of paralyzing information about what the Republicans are up to in terms of trying to create a one-party state along the lines of Orban, their hero, at the same time motivate people? I mean, 
I keep reporting on what the Republicans are doing, and I think it's it's sort of backfiring in as much as people are thinking, oh, my God, they got the game rigged. What's the point in voting? When, in fact, the only chance we have is to vote, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And and um, this this is getting pretty close to the last chance. Um, uh, people need to realize, uh, I came up with this uh, metaphor, I don't know, a few weeks ago, is walking through LaGuardia Airport, um, where you leave the security section, uh, the sign says, uh, um, if, if you exit here, you will not be able to return. Well, that's pretty much the message that needs to be gotten across to people. If we exit democracy now, we will not be able to return. This is it. And, you know, without democracy, there's no way to accomplish any of these things. And I think the message is pretty simple. I mean, the, 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 the Democrats need to quickly mention, you know, there's inflation. But on the other hand, the unemployment is as low as the economy is booming. But what really matters is that nothing can be done unless we preserve democracy. Republicans will destroy that. And basically the sort of hellscape of, uh, you know, women not being able to control their own bodies and uh, um, same-sex marriage not allowed. And uh, uh, there was just a thing that came out yesterday, I think it was from about a year ago, of J.D. Vance uh, saying that basically divorce shouldn't be allowed, that women who are in uh, uh, abusive relationships with violent men should just stay in them. It, they are just saying things that overwhelmingly people were opposed to. And so if you just focus on, you know, four or five of those, including climate change, and say this is what the Democrats will do if you just give us a few more people in Congress, the Republicans will do exactly the opposite or absolutely nothing. Um, it doesn't seem like it should be, you know, it's not, as they say, rocket science. Well, J.D. Vance and the other guy in Arizona, Masters, Blake Masters, are financed by a billionaire Peter Thiel, who is one of these libertarian billionaires who believes that human beings are only can only be judged on how much money they have. That's the only measure of human worth. And it's a frightening prospect that those kind of people are literally on the stage, let alone stand a chance to become U.S. senators. But look at the kind of people that Trump's chosen. He's this complete moron down in Georgia, the football player who can't even put a sentence together. And you got Tommy Turberville that Trump already got into the. Yeah, I'm just going to say Tommy Turberville isn't isn't much above that. He's already in the Senate. Right, but they're the kind of people that Trump is comfortable with, and that's where we're heading. And as you point out, <laughs> that the new Gilded Age gives way to the Gilead Age, right? Right, and and I, I was making the point there that these extremely greedy people who have been pushing this conspiracy. You know, I talk about conspiracy theories, which is another terminology that uh, kind of drives me up the wall because these these kooks don't have theories. Uh, they're not things to be tested by evidence. They're just crazy ideas. But this conspiracy that's been going on among the oligarchs, among the plutocracy, is real and it's been going on for a long time. And one of the things that they realized along about the late 70s was that even though they'd like to overturn democracy and they're getting closer to it now, that they were still operating as a democracy and they had to find some way to appeal to other people uh, whose interests were not at all in line with the interests of concentrating more wealth in the hands of a very few. And so that's how abortion became a big issue. They, abortion even after the Roe decision was not, not a big issue. Uh, 
evangelical Protestants had never been particularly interested in it. They thought it was a Catholic issue, uh, and they didn't like Catholics. And uh, But Paul Weirich and some of these other people saw an opportunity to, uh, Jerry Falwell being another one, to bring together the money and the intentions of the super-rich with a voting base. Um, the super-rich, I mean, maybe some of them care about abortion, but uh, I doubt almost any of them do. Uh, they're, just, they're just using these people. And, you know, that's another as a, thing. As a that form of distraction, of them... really. I mean, right, they're d- right. distracting people from, and guns is a similar issue. You distract people from the yeah, real issues that, also that, is... that working people have in common. It's a, it's a divide and conquest tactic, obviously. And I mean, actually, we've run, we we have run out of time, uh, Robert. I'm I'm sorry to say, but I found the conversation very useful, and I thank you. Thank you. I enjoyed talking with you. And again, I've been speaking with Robert McIlvain, who's a professor of history and chair of arts and letters at Millsaps College. He's considered one of the world's leading historians of the era of the Great Depression, and is the author of ten books, including the Encyclopedia of the Great Depression, and most recently, The Times They Were a Change in. 1964, the year the 60s arrived and the battle lines of today were drawn. And he has an article at Salon, Seven Days in June, A Coup More Effective Than Donald Trump's. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Asher Price. If you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or to publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another Background Briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared